Let's pray again as we come now to study the Bible. Let's pray. From the book of Isaiah, God is recorded as saying this, My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they stand up together. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we come now to your word, we pray that it would summon us to worship you. And we ask this for your glory and in your name. Amen. Keep it real. It's one of the most popular slogans of our day. I'm sure you've heard it. We want authenticity more than authority these days. We want honesty more than modesty. We want frankness, not bashfulness. We want to keep it real. It's not hard to see why we feel like this. There have been decades of deceptive presentations that have dishonestly been spinning the truth. And so many now only want frank straightforwardness above all. For some, I wonder whether cynicism first crept in while watching a televangelist spectacularly fall from grace. For others, it was observing a politician do the same perhaps wondering whether really there was any difference between the two professions. Uh, For others, perhaps, it was simply when they found that the commercial product that they had just bought did nothing like what it had said that it would do. For others, it was when they were deceived by someone they had personally trusted. For some, it was in church, A person of authority, perhaps a cleric even, said one thing and did another, sounded good but lived badly and ended up manipulating them with religious jargon. Now, each time they come to church, if they still attend, they're left eagle-eyed on the lookout for the fake, hypersensitive to any sign of inauthenticity. Well, I have sympathy with that desire to keep it real. And happily enough, so does the Bible, as our passage uh, this morning will show. Though it certainly defines authenticity in a way few today would have predicted. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29, or page 940. In, uh, in the Pew Bibles, and they read as follows. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Four. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, as you probably realize, 
This passage is from Paul's famous letter to the Romans, written, perhaps you know, about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. We celebrated in church just last week. Paul dictated the letter to his uh, secretary, Tertius, while he was in the Greek city of Corinth. And his overall theme uh, was this, the gospel of God, chapter 1, verse 1, as a spiritual gift to strengthen the Romans, chapter 1, verse 11, by a bold reminder for them to serve all nations with that same gospel of God, chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. In other words... Paul is writing this masterpiece about the gospel so that the Romans would be spiritually strengthened to change the world. In the first section of the letter, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul has started where few Christian teachers today would even dare end, I'm afraid. He has said, every single person is by nature under the wrath of God. Chapter 1, verse 18. Now, that was not said to discourage them, much less to intimidate them, but to encourage them and inspire them by the contrasting vision of the glory of Christ who bore our sins on the cross. You know, if you want to motivate a person to treasure a thing, you show them how much it cost. And as when a person emerges blinking from a cave into the lights, they realize anew the sheer brightness of the, of the sun. So this teaching strikes a person by the sheer brilliance of free grace. By contrast. So far, Paul has shown them that all people, religious and non-religious, Superficially immoral or scandalously immoral, both Jew and Gentile are in this way the same. We all need Jesus. Now in our passage this morning, Paul, as a former Jewish teacher himself, responds to how a Jewish person would object. You see, a religious Jew at this point would simply say, I don't need Jesus because I've been circumcised. You see, circumcision then was not merely a painful medical procedure for boys. No, it was, a, it was a prize, privilege, because it specified the Jewish nation as God's people. It was a sign that they were the very children of Abraham, circumcised in obedience to God's instructions. Paul now answers then this circumcision objection to Jesus by the spiritual nature of real circumcision. And so our passage is uh, structured simply in two parts. The first, verses 25 to 27, Paul proves with his characteristic logic in a sort of devastating way that mere external circumcision by itself is of no value. And then the second part, verses 28 to 29, Paul defines with boldness the spiritual nature of real circumcision. Again, characteristically bold for the apostle. So our main proposition this morning is as follows. Do not rely on external conformity to religious ceremony, but seek internal transformation. Because real circumcision is by the Spirit. 
First, external conformity. Second, internal transformation. First, external conformity. Well, verses 25 to 27 prove circumcision has no value by itself, only if someone also obeys the law by showing that circumcision was intended to be a mere external sign of belonging to the people of God. Paul has uh, this devastating logic so characteristic of him, and it's built on three successive steps of inference. One, circumcision has value only if you obey the law. Two, if someone who is uncircumcised keeps the law, they are as good as circumcised. And then three, the physically uncircumcised who keep the law would then condemn those who have circumcision but do not keep the law. Let's follow his logic together. One, circumcision has value only if you obey the law. Verse 25. Circumcision, Paul writes, indeed is of value only if you obey the law, but that means if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, Paul is not saying that circumcision has no value. He is saying that by itself, circumcision has no value. Elsewhere, the Bible teaches uh, Christians need not be circumcised and indeed must not be forced to be circumcised. But here, Paul has explained the original purpose of circumcision. Paul's logic is that as circumcision was always intended to be merely an external sign pointing to actual obedience, so therefore those who do not obey are not circumcised really. God's people are to be holy. Leviticus 20 verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy. Hebrews 12 verse 14, without holiness no one will see the Lord. And so the sign, circumcision, was useless without that which it was meant to signify, holiness. Perhaps the following illustration will help us grasp the original intention of this unfamiliar ceremony to us. Say on your iPad or your iPhone or something, you have an app. However, it has uh, malfunctioned in some way and the app no longer actually works. Uh, the icon of the app is still visible on the screen. You, you have the picture right in front of you, but you no longer have that app, really. Similarly, even this highly significant ceremony of circumcision, of ancient Abrahamic vintage, is nonetheless insignificant without the holiness to which it was meant to point. It's like a broken link in an email that you click on but does not open a web page anymore. Not really. Now, of course, perhaps few today in the West think that the sign of circumcision is sufficient by itself, but how many do excuse flabby spirituality because they possess other external signs the sign of being a citizen of a country with a strong religious heritage or being a member of a church or a Christian institution or or baptism or communion or knowing the Bible intellectually or Walking down the aisle at an evangelistic event or having some profound spiritual experience that took place 
a long while ago. What do you mean we need to be holy? We, we go to a Christian college? What do you mean we need to be holy? We take communion? What do you mean we need to be holy? We pray the sinner's prayer. What do you mean we need to be holy? We read the Bible? What do you mean we need to be holy? We, we are part of a significant Christian organization. External signs have great value only if we also actually go to where they point. Jesus. So one, Paul says, circumcision has value only if you obey the law. Two, his next step in his inference. If someone who is uncircumcised keeps the law, they are as good as circumcised, verse 26. So Paul asks, can you see, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, you have to understand, Paul is not saying that there are some uncircumcised who perfectly keep the law. No, no, no. This, this is one of Paul's hypothetical Syllogisms, that is a form of logical argument with a conditional statement as a premise. In other words, Paul simply is reasoning like this. If someone who is uncircumcised perfectly keeps the law, if that were the case, then would not such a person's uncircumcision effectively be the same as circumcision? Really? You see, Paul is showing the person that thinks that because they were circumcised, they don't need Jesus, that they're just not being logical. You think you're fine because you've been circumcised, Paul asks. Well, okay, let's think about that together. What if there was someone who had not been circumcised but had perfectly obeyed God? Would they not be considered as good as being circumcised? So surely as a person without the sign of circumcision, but with the holiness which the sign signifies, is effectively to be regarded as circumcised really, well, surely there can be absolutely no reason to think that having the sign alone is sufficient. Doesn't make any sense. So one, circumcision has value only if you obey the law. Two, if someone who is uncircumcised keeps the law, are they not as good as circumcised? Then three, and most daringly of all, because circumcision has value only if you obey the law, and given the hypothetical that if someone who is uncircumcised keeps the law, they are as good as uh, circumcised, then three, the physically uncircumcised who keep the law would then condemn those who have circumcision but do not. Keep the law. Verse 27, look how Paul puts it. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Now, when he says condemn all that, Paul's not being sort of aggressive and angry. He's trying to, he's trying to be logical. He, Paul here is exposing the hidden logical fallacy of resting on a mere external sign like circumcision the written code of the Bible, without following what it says, by showing how ridiculous that would look to someone else to the extent that they would condemn those who make this silly mistake. Again, perhaps an illustration will help. Look at it like this. Uh, Say someone has a map, and it signifies the location of a mansion. You know, it's got a little mark on the map. That's where the mansion is. 
signifies the location of a mansion. And this is a mansion that they believe they have the right to occupy as their dwelling. Right? And say that person proudly shows you uh, the, uh, the map and the place on the map that signifies the location of this mansion. Say they never go to that mansion, but they're still proud that they have the map. Would the person who does not have the sign on the map but does live in the mansion be in a better situation? (laughs) Well, of course, yes. Would the person who actually lives in the mansion not criticize, even condemn the other person who said the sign on their map was as good as the actual mansion? Well, again, of course, yes. You see, there's no point having the sign if we do not have the reality, namely Jesus. And now those who are listening attentively to Paul's argument will begin enthusiastically to want this reality. And so having first proved with his devastating logic that external conformity is by itself of no value, next Paul defines with authentic boldness the second internal transformation. See how he puts it. Look at verses 28 to 29. They read like this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Wonderful, profound words hidden in this sort of unusual passage. I've often thought how profound they are and have been struck again by their insight. Let me try and explain it to you. See, Paul here is authentically defining the reality of internal transformation, what he calls here circumcision by the Spirit. As a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, that receives praise from God. So follow along his definition with me. One, internal transformation is a matter of the heart. Now, we don't have time, I don't have time to explain to you all across Scripture the truth of what I'm about to say, but I'll give you one little instance of it. You really need to be able to understand heart in the Bible to have a grasp of what Paul's saying here. Biblically, the heart means not sentimental romance or merely feelings. No, the heart is the hub of human personality. The Hebrew word for heart is center. The heart is the hub of human personality, character, thinking, feeling, and will. And so when Paul here says that internal transformation is a matter of the heart, what he's doing is he's not trying to be sentimental or sort of you know, touchy-feely emotional. What he's doing is he's turning our attention away from external conformity to renew the attitudes, the inclinations, the feelings, but also the thoughts. For instance... Do we have an envious heart? Are we jealous of what someone else has achieved, thinking that we deserve to do better? 
It's easy to end up thinking like that as we go through life and observe other people perhaps succeeding in ways that we feel they do not deserve to succeed. What is the solution? Well, the solution is found in the objective truth of Christ on the cross. Let me explain to you like this. The solution to an envious heart is to realize the greatness of God offered to you in the gospel. The psalmist in Psalm 73 struggled with uh, jealousy. You don't need to look it up right now, but you can if you like afterwards. And in Psalm 73, verse 25, he says this when he defeated his jealousy. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you, God. Well, that's how you do it. So When he's with God, he is without any reason to be envious of anyone else. What is greater than God that he could desire? doesn't matter, does it? I've got God. Or do we have a bitter heart? Has someone so betrayed us that it has soured a previous sweetness? Again, that's easy to happen as, to happen as we go through life, isn't it? What's the solution? Well, the solution to a bitter heart is a radical acceptance of God's sovereignty even over evil, again, revealed in the objective truth of the gospel. Uh, Some of us will be familiar with the well-known words of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's fulfilled. Finally summarized in Acts 2, verses 22 to 23, when the apostle Peter preaches like this. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, but God raised him up. So here's the biblical thinking about a bitter heart. What reason is there to be bitter when the evil, I can use biblical language, though it sounds radical, it is radical. When the evil was meant by God for good. God's sovereignty even over evil. That's how you defeat bitterness. You see, bitterness is replaced with sweetness when we realize that God turned the knife from our throat to cut our bread. Do we have an unforgiving heart? Again, that's easy to pick up over time through life, isn't it? What's the solution? The solution to an unforgiving heart is to remember how much we've been forgiven. As Jesus teaches in his parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, how can we possibly not forgive someone else when we reflect on all that we have been forgiven? How can we hammer the nails into another person when we hear our sins hammered into the cross of Jesus? How is that possible? It should not be, brothers and sisters. Do we have a revengeful heart? Again, I know it's so easy to get into these kind of feelings and thinking, isn't it? Someone perhaps has done some real evil abuse to us in our past. What is the solution? Well, again, it comes out of the gospel of God. The solution to a revengeful heart is found in the character of God. 
revealed in the gospel. So Paul says, Romans 12 verse 19, quoting, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, the cross shows that God is a just God. All sins receive their just deserts either in hell or at the cross. Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. What point is there in seeking vengeance when God thoroughly and completely resolves all injustice? Is our vengeance more fulsome than the crucifixion of the Son of God? Or more fearsome than hell? Or do we have a critical heart? Again, it's easy as we go through life to begin to develop this sort of attitude, isn't it? Do we, do we easily now find fault with the performance of others, the motives of others, the character of others? Do we find ourselves seeing through almost everything until there is practically nothing at all left to see? What's the solution? It comes out of the security of the gospel God that allows us to be real about who we are. In other words, the solution to a critical heart is to examine yourselves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We will not notice someone else's speck in their eye while we're busy removing the plank from our own eye, as Jesus put it. And so it's a matter of the heart. How? Well, too, then, this internal transformation of the heart, Paul says, is by the Spirit. That's how. And Paul actually, I think, emphasizes what he means by this internal transformation being by the Spirit when he distinguishes this as not by the letter. So the letter here is what Paul has described in the first half of the passage as external conformity to religious ceremony. So he's now bringing home his point. Not the letter, not external conformity to religious ceremony without the reality of wholeness of life from the heart. So by the Spirit means the work of the Spirit of Jesus in our hearts to transform us from the inside out. And my friends, no technique, no program, no expertise, no qualifications, no human cleverness can ever replace powerful transformation by the Spirit of God. Heart matters require Holy Spirit solutions. Let me illustrate from history in, in, in two ways. Uh, first one, influential 19th century critic of the Bible was a man named F.C. Bauer. Having studied the Bible academically but increasingly without, well, faith and certainly without reliance on the Spirit, he was faced with the death of his own wife. 
This famed theologian could not now even find the words to pray at his wife's bedside. His moribund theology had left him with nothing to pray at the hour of his and his wife's greatest trial. (laughs) He had to request that a local pastor come pray instead. Probably a less prominent theologian, but apparently a more proficient one. Let us remember then that Bible study is good. But without reliance on the Spirit, it's like becoming an expert food critic without actually eating the food. It's going to spoil appetite if it doesn't actually starve you, and it will leave us without spiritual strength, perhaps when we most need it. This is food. It's not a game. Let us then study on our knees, sometimes literally, always by humble, prayerful reliance on the Spirit. Second illustration from church history, an American Methodist leader of the same 19th century once wrote this, what was the first step which led down from Puritanism to atheism in New England? It was the attempt to build up a church without the Holy Spirit in conviction of sin, regeneration, and sanctification. He said, an orthodox creed must perish when the spiritual life goes out of a domination, then heresies will swarm into the vacuum left by the Holy Ghost. So true. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So then remember, doing church without reliance on the Spirit, what's that like? What well, it's like trying to navigate a sailing ship without a breeze of wind. It's going to get frustrating. Well, at least stagnate. We don't abandon ship altogether. And it will leave us without the momentum that we need to push forward. So let us then do church on our knees too. Sometimes literally. Always by humble, prayerful reliance on the Spirit. For internal transformation is a matter of the heart and is by the Spirit, three, and therefore praise from God. So Paul's last phrase here is launched into orbits by the springboard of an emphatic negative that precedes. Not from man, praise for God. Not from man, praise to God. See, here's how this works. Internal transformation must inevitably be focused on pleasing God. It must be. We can impress people with knowledge, with professional qualifications. We can impress people with rhetoric. We can impress people with piety, passion, and performance. (laughs) But only God sees the heart. And that's where the internal transformation has to occur. Take Jesus' advice. Find a private room, lock the door, get on your knees, and ask God to transform you by His Spirit. 
Go where no one else sees but God, and no one else will praise but God. Keep it real. Well, Paul was against fake religion, as was Jesus, both of whom turned over the tables of the hypocrites of their respective temples, vigorously denouncing the religious frauds that sometimes, so often, keep people away from the real Jesus. Paul wants us to not rely on external conformity to religious ceremony, but seek internal transformation because real circumcision is by the Spirit. Paul wants real Christianity. However, he is, though, looking for far more than a keep-it-real slogan especially if that minimal standard of honesty can inoculate us to the challenge of improvement, prevent us from keeping growing and developing and learning and making spiritual progress. God does not merely want vulnerability about our depravity or frankness about our failings or openness about our weaknesses. God wants holiness. That is the only authentic spirituality worth the name. For it is only possible by the power of the Spirit of Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Spirit of Jesus. We pray that you would transform us increasingly into your likeness. And we pray it for Jesus' glory. Amen.